You're listening to Connect Communities Podcast, recorded live in Stamford, Connecticut. If you'd like to know more about our community, stop by our website at www.connectcommunity.tv. Enjoy the message. If we think about the thought in the underbelly of our culture, there is an ideology that God has been a rigid, restrictive, and narrow God that only communes with a a certain type of person. That God only receives a certain type of person. That God will only have a relationship with a certain type of person. That he will only bless a certain type of person. And if we think that way, we can argue, we can we can spend time arguing on what type of person that is. And sometimes, even in environments like this, we can follow that mindset, we can follow that thinking into thinking that we need to discover what type of person it is that can have access, that can have some kind of special access to God. And we can ponder and, and argue whether that type of person is the religious person. The person who is strict with their religious commitment. The person who makes sure to be, to to abstain from anything that's worldly. To abstain from any pleasures or any passions of this world. Maybe we think that that person, that person has an in with God. That they have some kind of VIP status with God. Or maybe on a more mainstream idea, we can think that that person is a good old American boy who drives a Chevy truck, listens to Christian or country music, which is basically the same, right? And votes Republican. Ooh. (laughs) See, under this mindset, there is one thing that is sure, whether you think about it as a God that is strict or he who picks a certain type of person, there is one thing that is sure. We understand God as being, uh, uh, as being someone who has a, a strict set of, of requirements. A God who makes demands. And unless you meet these demands, you are out. So in this mentality, God is a club president. God is somebody who's handing out memberships to people who qualify. Now, we all know that we live in a world of requirements. You and I, we live in a world of requirements. And you, you experienced this from an early age. When you started kindergarten, there were requirements. At that young age, you begin to feel a sense for requirements in an environment with other people. There were requirements of you. One very simple requirement is age. There's an age requirement. Can't be eight years old and going to kindergarten. That's weird. Or you can't be too young either, because you won't understand. There's an age requirement for kindergarten. You have to be five, four and a half, or some states, right? But also on top of that, there there are expectations, expectations of behavior. You have to behave a certain way. There's expectations of presence. 
attendance. You have to be in your classroom, be in the school for a period of time. You're expected to arrive at a certain time and you're expected to leave at a certain time. And then there's expectations of performance. You have to perform. And without even being able to articulate it that way, through all your school career, through all the years that you studied and you went to school, this was ingrained in your mind and in my mind that we have expectations that are put on us, requirements that are put on us of behavior. Go to school, you got to behave a certain way. You have to behave a certain way toward the body of students, toward your fellow students, toward the teachers and those in authority. And you have to be present. There's a requirement of presence. You can't just stroll in at any time you wish. You have to be there at a certain time. If you get a tardy pass, too many times you get suspended. You'll be in trouble. And you can't stay in school until the weekend also. You got to leave. And then there's expectation of performance. C's get degrees. Amen. Praise Jesus. Where are my C students at? No, don't raise your hand. Everybody here is an A. We are all A students. There is expectations in life, and that bleeds on, that goes and, and into our careers. If you have a job, whether you manage people, whether you are a company owner or you are an employee, there's expectations of you, expectations of behavior. You have to behave a certain way toward your employees, toward the people you work with, and toward your customers. There is expectations of performance. You have to perform your, your job description. If you're a leader, you have to cast vision, set direction. There's expectations of presence. You got to be there. You got to be present. And that goes into even the most intimate of relationships. In marriage, you have to fulfill those requirements too. Got to be present. You got to behave a certain way toward your spouse. Otherwise, the marriage is not going to be healthy. You can't get married and then a year later go, hey, babe, I'm going to move to Europe. Don't know when I'm going to get back, but we're on, okay? Our marriage is going to be strong. No. And don't elbow your spouse and say, that's a good idea. You should do that. Don't do that. It's not a good idea. There's expectations of performance as well. See? These expectations, though, are not bad. They're not bad. They make up our society. They make up, they help you develop good character. These are not bad things. These are things that we are supposed to fulfill. These are things that make our life better. They enrich our lives. But the scriptures are clear and there is clarity. God has, through Jesus, made his ways very clear. And I want you to get a revelation of how we commune with God this morning. I want you to get a revelation of how we are supposed to interact with our Heavenly Father. Because if we bring this mentality into our relationship with God, we're going to come up short. If we bring this mindset into our relationship with God and make it the basis, it's not that it's not part of it, it is part of it, but if you make it the basis, the foundation of your connection with God, it's going to be frustrating. You're always going to be feeling like you're missing out. You're going to look around and see people experiencing things that you're not experiencing. You're going to wonder, why is it that you're doing all the right things and yet... Someone else is being blessed. Someone else is experiencing God's love. Someone else is seeing things come true in their lives. The Apostle Paul powerfully shared a scripture that 
gives this idea, shares this revelation that can change your life. It changed his life, and it can change your life and my life. In Ephesians 3, verse 14, he begins with this passage. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, pause right there. You can leave the scripture on the screen right there, because we're going to continue. But I want you to not glance over this opening in this passage. Because what he is sharing here is powerful. See, I believe that the most powerful symbol of belonging in our society today, it has been, and it is, and it will always be family. The most powerful element of belonging, the most powerful picture of belonging in our society is, and will always be, family. It's family. Now, you know that in a family, if you are a member of a family, Nothing can change that, at least physically, at least biologically. Nothing can, if you have your father's or your mother's DNA, you are their child. And nothing can change that. Now we know, we all have heard stories, I have heard stories of families that don't get along. Even though they are physically connected, even though they share the same DNA, the relationship is not really there. But if you grew up in a loving family environment, if you had someone in your family who cared for you, who showed you love, you know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to the bonds of belonging in a family context. And maybe you're here this morning and you really didn't have a family environment that was healthy. Maybe you didn't grow up in a loving family environment. But I am sure that it's one of the things that you pursue. It's the thing that you want. In fact, maybe in your heart, you decided that that you, which you didn't receive, you're going to make it different to those that are coming after you. In other words, you decided when I have a child, it's not going to be this way. When I have a child, it's going to be better. They're going to belong. When I have a kid, they're going to know that they are loved. They're going to know that they'll have a roof over their heads. They're going to know that they are part of a family that they belong and maybe you did that and kudos to you if you did that that's what happened to my father-in-law my father-in-law grew up in an environment in a family environment where he never felt safe he never felt like he could be a kid he was always under the threat of violence he didn't know what it was like to be cherished or cared for completely and when he grew up he decided that with his family it was going to be different and so he divided, he devised, and he created an environment that was different for his daughters. He created an environment that was safe where they could belong. And today, because he chose to give what he never had, now he has what he never had. And some of you, you are in the same boat. You chose to give what you never received from your parents. And because you chose to give what you never received from your parents, now you experience this beautiful powerful bond of belonging in your family. If that's you, kudos to you. God bless you for that. But family, family has a powerful, powerful element. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And Paul is saying here that God, he is the father. He's not the president. He's not the club president. He is the father from which 
every family in heaven and on earth is named. Every group, every tribe, every single nation in, on earth. This is a powerful statement that Paul is making. It's a deep and powerful statement. He's saying we are all part of God's family. We all belong to him. Every single one of us. And he continues. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. How is that going to happen? How is Christ going to dwell in our hearts through faith? That's what we want, isn't it? That's the beginning of this message. How do we commune with God? How do we have a relationship with God? How can Christ dwell in our hearts? He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may, strength, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I believe we want the fullness of God. I believe that's why you're here this morning. That's why you're listening. That's why you watch messages. Because we want the fullness of God. That's what we really yearn in the depth of our heart. Now, I've always been puzzled by this sentence right here. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How can you know what surpasses knowledge? How can you know the thing that surpasses knowledge? Isn't that a self-defeating exercise? I'm going to get to know what surpasses knowledge. And then I realized that what Paul is talking about here is a different kind of knowledge. If you have a smartphone, if you own a smartphone, you know your phone. You know the content. You know how to take a picture. You know how to send emails. You know how to send texts. You made your bitmoji with better hair, better tan. And you send stickers and you know how to send funny gifts. You know your phone. You use it for email and texting and read the news. And you know all about it. But if I were to give you all the parts. If I were to give you the screen and the battery and the chips and the things. Everything and put on a table and say assemble it. Or if I give you a pencil and said draw the schematics of your phone. You wouldn't be able to do it. At least probably 99% of the room here wouldn't be able to do it. So you know it, yet it surpasses your knowledge. You know it by experience. But if you were to get in the outworkings of it, you wouldn't be able to comprehend it. If you leave here this morning and you go to the mall, you get in your car... You drive in the garage, maybe you go up the ramp and you find a parking spot. You go inside, you pay for your parking, and you know where you want to go. If you want to go to Macy's or you want to go to Gap or you want to go to Banana Republic or J. Crew, If you want to go to Barnes & Nobles, just giving ideas out there. You know where to get, how to get there, and then you know how to go back to your car. You know how to have an experience at the mall. Now, if I asked you... Can you explain what the blueprint is like? Can you tell me about the plumbing that is required for 
and, and infrastructure like this? Can you tell me about the, the weight capacity of this parking lot? Can you tell me about the electrical wirings and all that? Maybe you wouldn't know to say. So you know it, but it surpasses your knowledge. And this is what Paul is talking about when he's referring to the love of God. He's saying, I don't know. It surpasses my knowledge how he loves us, how his love can do this. But I got to tell you, his love is wide. His love is deep. His love is high. His love can cover every single difficulty. Here is somebody who had killed in the name of God. Here is somebody who had persecuted people. Here is somebody who thought he was on the right track of things and discovered that he was in the wrong all along and yet he was loved yet he was healed and maybe you're here this morning and you experience that in your own life you experience that in your own life you don't re you don't know how you were able to get uh, restored from that bad experience maybe you don't know how you were able to recover from what you recovered but somehow the love of God came and scooped you up and restored you and brought you together and now you're back together restored in one piece and you don't know how you made through it but you did it you know the love of God yet it surpasses your knowledge maybe you were believing for something and you didn't know how it was going to come to pass and you know that it was the love of God that delivered it that answered your prayer that healed you that made you go beyond that difficulty you know it but it surpasses your knowledge. In talking about love, C.S. Lewis teaches us that we as humans, you, we as people, we experience love in two main ways. We, we characterize love in two main ways. And the first way that he puts it, he calls it the need love that we all have. We all have need love. And the need love is the love that a child has for its mother, where he comes to the mom when he needs care and attention and, and uh, nourishment. And the other kind of love is gift love. is the kind of love that the, child, that the, the person has and desires to give. Where you give not because of somebody did something to you. You did because you give because of who the person or what the person means to you. You give because of who the loved is. Is the kind of love, gift love, is the kind of love that gives without requiring anything in return. But these loves that we experience, these love exchanges, cause us to realize this, that the loving loves the lovable. In all of these experiences, the loving loves the lovable. And when we need love, we realize on the back of our heads that we need to be lovable to gain that love. And when we give love, we give love to that which we find lovable. But with God, God goes much beyond these requirements that we set in our minds. God doesn't, doesn't love like we love. His love is more powerful. And there is a beautiful... There's a beautiful uh, illustration in scripture found in Luke 7 and I want to read to you because this illustration really this is what brought this whole message 
to my heart. And it's a, it's a passage, it's about 11 verses, and I want to read to you so you can get a picture for what we're talking about here today. Because I want you to leave here today understanding this in your heart, being relieved from some of these, these mindsets. Uh, starts on verse 36 of chapter 7 of Luke. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat, that was Jesus, asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves, he who is forgiven little loves little. Now in this passage, this is a powerful, powerful, beautiful passage because you have two people. You have two different worlds, two different experiences, yet both of them are communing with Jesus. Both of them are in an active relationship with Jesus. On one side, you have Simon, who was a Pharisee. Now let me tell you, it was not easy to be a Pharisee in those days. It was not easy to live a life as a Pharisee. It was not easy to qualify to be a Pharisee. You're talking about VIP? It was difficult to become a Pharisee. It was even more difficult to remain a Pharisee. These were people who had vowed to be holy. They were member. He was a member of a club, the club of the Pharisees. And by his lifestyle, he felt entitled, I could say. To a certain kind of relationship with God. Simon was an expert in all things God. He knew the Jewish Bible. He knew the law. And he was objectively a good person. This was a good man. He was wanting to be good. He desired to be good. He lived his life to be a good person. And then on the other side, you have the woman who was a sinner. She was, in fact, a sinner. She knew the scriptures. She knew the Bible just enough to know that she was in the wrong. Have you ever experienced that? You just know enough to know that you are out. That was her. She knew just enough to know that she was a sinner, that she was not a member of the good people club. She was not seen as a good person objectively. 
Now, this is where we need to pay attention. And, you know, if you are tuning out, just come back to me right now. Because this is the moment where everything goes opposite. Because according to the normal thinking of the time, and even our paradigm here today, Simon would be the one who would have a greater revelation of God, who would have a greater revelation of the love of God. He spent his life studying, fasting, praying. Yet the woman experienced the love of God and experienced God in a way that he could not, he couldn't perceive what she saw. How? How come? Have you ever felt this way? Like you talk, you hear about love, you talk about love, and you try to do everything right, and then somebody else who is living a life that you don't think, you don't think of it in a derogatory way, but they're living a life that you, they're not trying as hard as you. Not trying, and then they get the blessing. They find what you're looking for. And you go like, how is that possible? See, this beautiful passage shows us and gives us not only a beautiful, beautiful picture of the love of Jesus, but it gives us also a warning. It shows us that there is a possibility. There is a possibility that we may spend our lives devoting ourselves to have a good life and actually missing it. That's what happened to this Pharisee. He was spending his life so focused on being good. That he missed the good one. See, here's what, where, where everything uh, kind of, it, it's a tell. This is the big tell in this passage. It was his judgment of Jesus. He begins to see Jesus through his lens. He creates an image of God who is in the likelihood of man. He basically creates an image of God that is closer to him. Closer to his lifestyle. And when he looks at Jesus, he says, Jesus can't be a prophet. There's no way that he is who he says he is. At least it's not his fault because he doesn't know. Because if he knew, if he knew the kind of woman she is, if he knew what she is known for. Now we don't know what sin it was, but she was a sinner. And typically, most scholars believe that she was a prostitute, that she was a harlot. But even if she, if she was a robber or whatever else that she was involved in, or whatever crime activity or sin that she was involved in, certainly she was seen as the Pharisees as impure. And the simple act of touching would cause Jesus to be impure as well. The Pharisee cannot, cannot conceive that Jesus would know and yet allow her to touch him. And this is where I want to bring it all together today, this morning. Because we need to switch our thinking. Sometimes we think like the Pharisee. We think, if I could be a, a good person, God will bless me. And you strive to be good. And that's what Simon was doing. He was striving to be good. But in striving to be good, he was consumed with himself. He looked at Jesus and said, if Jesus is really worried about being good, he wouldn't let her touch him. It was a very defensive, I got to be good so I can be loved. And, and Jesus, and what the lady realized is this, I am loved, therefore I can be good. 
I am loved, therefore I can be good. And here's the difference. You have someone who thought of himself as good and someone who was known to be bad. And Jesus brings it all to the table with a simple sentence. He clarifies it for us. He says, Simon, a moneylender had two debtors. In other words, you both are on the same plane. You are both in debt. You are both in the same category. Now, you may think that you only owe a little bit because of the lifestyle you're living. She knows exactly how much she owes. But the, the, the focus is not on the fact that we owe. We know we owe. We know we come up short. That's why you're here this morning. We all know that we owe. The beauty of this passage is that the moneylender, which is a very simple uh, parable that Jesus was giving that man, a very simple example. The moneylender canceled the debt. Can you imagine that? Not forgave, not paid, he canceled it. And in that example, Jesus tells you and I right here in 2017, because in my mind, as I was reading that scripture, I began to think, how would that mean? What would that mean to you and I? How would a Pharisee like Simon look like in 2017? How would a woman like that look like in 2017? And I can't think of a better example to classify our experiences of God than this passage, because we all strive to be good. And that's a good thing. Try to be good. But we can't think that our goodness is what earns God's love. Right? What he has done for you, and the reason why we can be good, is that he has canceled your debt. He has canceled your debt. It's as if it had never happened. So any of the things that might be holding you back, any of the things that once held you back, they don't hold you back any longer. Including the need to feel like you need to be good to earn God's love. You don't need that. And this morning, the way I want to close is that I want us to approach God not like Simon, but like the woman. Because there's a big difference between coming to God every Sunday and getting here and saying, yeah, I'm a good person and that's why I'm here. I'm a good person. That's why I can sing this. And you go home and you go like, I'm a good person, basking in my goodness. Thank you, God, that you blessed me because I'm a good person. Or we can come surrendered and saying, God, I, I don't know. I don't know how you can love me as much as you do. But I receive your love. You are good. You are great. You are my God. When we have that approach, when we change our mindset and we complete abandon, come to God, we will see things change because he will reveal that kind of love that Paul talked about, the breadth, the width, the height, it will change everything because you will know that there is no part of your life that his love cannot reach. You don't have to hide. 
you can come to him wholly and completely with all your parts. Did you receive it this morning? I want to invite you to stand. Yes.